Today we're going to finish up our series on faith, hope, and love. And to get us started, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we want to pick up in verse 4. And you need to understand that this passage is a passage not speaking primarily about marriage, but it is speaking primarily about the church. And it describes who God is and how we as Christians are called to love one another. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, Paul says that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then we learned last week, verse 7 is the key. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, and love endures all things. And then he transitions, and he says, love never ends. Literally, love never dies. Love never fails. Love never falls down. It never trips up. But then he goes on, he says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, he says, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let us pray. Father, open up our eyes to see, open up our ears to hear, and open up our hearts to receive what you want to teach us about love this morning. May the words and the meditation of our hearts this morning, and that I speak, may it be pleasing in your sight, for you are our rock. And you are our Redeemer. Have you ever had to convince someone that they were wrong? Have you ever had to pull someone aside and say, what you're doing isn't right. You need to change the course or it's not going to end well. Or have you ever had to tell someone, you need to stop doing what you're doing and you need to start going in this direction. You need to actually turn around. So if someone is walking in the wrong direction, you need to tell them, stop going in that direction, turn around and go in the opposite direction. Convincing someone to change and to move in a new direction is not easy. Basically, I've had to do that sort of my whole life being in ministry. I've been at multiple churches, and I've had to try to, to convince and encourage them to sort of change the course or to change the path 
that they are on. But not just as a pastor, but actually as a coach. And nothing has been more sometimes frustrating than trying to convince fifth and sixth grade boys to stop playing basketball the way they think they should be playing basketball and to play it as a team or to play it in a different way. You know, I've sort of become convinced that maybe my time to retire from coaching basketball is today. You see, when I coach and at at practice, we run a lot of drills. And so if we're working on a bounce pass, I'll, I'll show them how to do a bounce pass. And I say, I want you to do a bounce pass. And this drill is going to require a bounce pass. And the first thing a kid does is throw a chest pass. Or we love this drill, it's called the three-man weave, and before our game we were doing it, and I said, I want the guy who starts the three-man weave, I want him to shoot the layup. Sure enough, I get done and I tell the kids, do this, and the next thing I know, the guy who is the second one to receive the ball, he's shooting a layup, and I said, time out, what was I trying to do? I was trying to tell you guys, I want the guy who's passing the ball first to shoot the layup in the game yeah they have these things called timeouts I don't even know why we use them but I'll call a timeout and usually I'll draw something up on the board and I say I want you to do this and I want you to run it you know in a way that I have drawn up and sure enough and if it's like I want this player to take the ball out of bounds I call the timeout and I release them into the game and Won't you know it? A different guy goes to pass the ball in. And I'm just like, what am I doing? Why can you guys not hear me? And so as a coach, I've learned, I try to get the kids' attention. And I try to have their eyes and their ears focused on me. And you know, the kids in practice are dribbling the ball and they're distracted. And so I I need your eyes. I need you to focus in. But I have learned that trying to convince people to change or to listen is about one of the hardest things you can do. But church history and the Bible is full of examples of people trying to convince people that they were wrong and that they needed to change their ways. Throughout our church history, whether it was Martin Luther or John Calvin, or if it was Charles Wesley or John Wesley, trying to change the patterns and behaviors, and most of all, trying to change the heart of people is very difficult. You see, this verse in 1 Corinthians 13, it's often read at a, a wedding, and we, used to, we, we love to apply it in the marriage context. But we need to understand that 1 Corinthians 13 is not just a love chapter in isolation. 1 Corinthians 13 actually is in a context of the Corinth church. That's why last week I said the primary application for love is in the church. Secondary application, yes, is in marriage or in the home as it it relates to, uh, to, to being a parent or at school, loving your classmates, or at work, loving a fellow employee. But 1 Corinthians 13 is in the context of a local church. And Paul, he founded the church. He started the church. But then he released the church, and as you know, he planted other churches. Eventually, 
Paul found himself in prison and he started writing letters to some of the churches that he had started that have sort of had drifted and have moved off center and had turned away from the direction that he set out. So Paul actually had written multiple letters to 1 Corinthians 13 or to not 1 Corinthians 13, but to the church in Corinth. And so he is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, what you're doing is not right. There's divisions in the church. Some of you say, I I follow Apollos, or some of you will say, well, I follow Barnabas, or some of you would say, well, I like Paul. But Paul often was trying to defend himself because people would rather... Listen to Apollos, and Paul goes on and he says, you think you're so wise, but you really you're acting very foolish. You think you have knowledge, but you're really acting in ignorance. He says, all that Apollos does, all that Barnabas does, all that I do, and other teachers is we just water and we plant the seed, but it is God who causes the church to grow. But Paul takes up issue after issue in the Corinth church. There was a lot of sexual immorality. Some incest was going on. It was just very corrupt. They they were eating food offered to idols. And when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, are you guys ignorant about spiritual gifts? And he goes on and he's trying to teach them about spiritual gifts. And they were very confused and they thought, like we learned last week, because they spoke in tongues, that they were more spiritual or they were better or they had the gift of knowledge, which was spiritual knowledge or special knowledge or could understand the mysteries of the world, that they were better off. And Paul's saying, wait a second here, there is a context for ministry or for spiritual gifts in the local church. And that context is love. And love trumps Everything when it comes to the local church. So just quickly by way of review, last week we we focused in, and uh, these are some different words, but we focused in on verse 7, which I had read to you just a second ago. And verse 7 says that, that love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, and love endures all things. And notice how I describe it here. Love is a protection. Love is a belief. Love is hopeful. Love is strong. Last week I said for the protection, love is a shade because literally the the term here is used for a covering or a roof. And so love is constantly trying to to see the best in others, but love doesn't point out others' faults. It, It tries to cover them. It tries to hide them, not... Not their sin, but where they're weak. And it, it tries to protect their vulnerability. But where we spent most of the time is that love believes all things or trusts all things. And love tries to see the best. It's not out there trying to say, aha, I got you. Or to set someone up so that they will constantly fail. We, t- we talked about that uh, self-fulfilling prophecy last week that if we think someone is going to mess up, yes, they are going to mess up. But love believes all things. It sees the best in people. And love is hopeful. It, it, 
it understands that God is at work and that we need to trust him. And love is strong. Literally, love never quits. It never dies. It perseveres. It, it holds up under the weight. Basically, we use the illustration that love is a race to the back of the line. And what we've been trying to learn is what Jesus basically taught us about love. That, that love is a verb. Love is not an emotion or a feeling but that love is a verb, and we're going to see that love is an action word. It requires obedience and for us to do something. That is what love is all about. But Jesus raised the standard, and he said that, I want you to follow my example of love. He gave us the example of washing the disciples' feet, and he said this is the model of love. It's humility and it's service. In fact, Jesus, when he commanded us to love one another, he says, I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. You see, love is the mark of being a Christian. So in the church, as Jesus goes, so does Christianity go. And as love goes, the church goes, because the more we love the more the church grows and develops and matures. So I want to pick up today where we left off in verse 8. And if you, you got your Bibles open and you notice verse 8, it's, it's what I would call sort of a hinge verse. It, it holds the first seven verses together and then it holds 9 through 13 together as well. But notice what it says. It says, love never ends. Love never dies. You see, Paul is sort of putting an exclamation point on love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The exclamation point is the reason that is so important is because love never dies. Love never ends. Love never fails. Love never trips or falls down. Love never stumbles. It never collapses. Love is always there. So it's an exclamation point to what love is all about, being patient and kind and, and generous. It's an attitude, but it is actions displayed through this Christ-like attitude. But it is also a kickstarter. You see, when he says love never falls down, and he's trying to kickstart. So since love never fails and love never ends and love never dies, it needs to kickstart something in our lives in the church when it comes to ministry and service and what is spirituality and what is growth. So we will see here what he means when he says love never dies. So love is very important. Love is life-changing. It will... It will change the culture and the perspective of the church. So he transitions. You see, Corinth, one of their problems was they were stuck in the now. You see, they thought that they were spiritual. They thought that they had their act together because everyone was speaking in tongues and everyone's had this, this gift of knowledge, they thought. And they thought they were they're more spiritual and they just wanted to stay in this zone. But remember, Paul says, 
Are you ignorant about spiritual gifts? Are you ignorant about how the Spirit works? And when he told them to, to eagerly desire the greatest spiritual gifts, he was really saying, I want you to, to eagerly desire the, the pursuit and to be hungry for love. So here's the second point that we need to understand under the Kickstarter of love never ends or love never dies. Love is both now and forever. Love is both present and future. Love is both dealing with mortality and immortality. Love is both what we do here on earth and what we will do in heaven. Love is both now and forever. Again, the current Corinthian church, they were stuck in the now. So many churches today, we're, we're, we're stuck in the now or we're stuck in the past. We're not thinking about the future. And what, what Paul wants us to know is what carries us in the future is love. You see, not only in our church, but in any church that I've been involved in, you hear phrases like, we used to do it this way. Oh, if we could only bring back this, because we, again, we had this feeling or this emotion that we were spiritually alive when we were doing this, and if we would just bring that back. But you see, all those things we did in the past or the things that we're currently doing now that may actually be working, those things... They will die, and eventually, if we don't have love, they're, they're meaningless. To say we used to do something just doesn't make sense. I'll give you an example from my own life. You know, I've been trying to help my kids with their finances. And long before David Ramsey, there was, there was Larry Burkett, and there was Ron Blue, and I, I tried to put these principles into my kids' lives. And, and then Dave Ramsey came along, and... They have a specific thing that they do that they, they talk about and they emphasize that it's really spiritual if you put your money in envelopes. <laughs> do you know any young people that carry money today? To put money in envelopes, it's, just a, it's a system that worked for its time and we can't just say, oh, we just need to go back to putting money in the envelopes. That, that's not going to work. You see, my son, uh, Micah, he, he, he does money on his phone. He, he pays others cash on his phone. And again, I'm not smart enough to figure it out. But if I come and I say, Micah, you need to use the envelope system. And you need to have categories of where you're going to spend your money. It, it just doesn't work because he's not used to carrying cash. The Corinth church, again, they were stuck and they were stuck in this, this level of spirituality that they thought they were, they were better than other churches and other Christians. And the ones that could speak in tongues were the ones that had it. But Paul says, no, what's going to carry on? So notice what he says. He says, as for prophecies, they will cease. Again, they, they thought they were spiritual if God spoke to them and then they had a word to share. He says, he says, for tongues, 
they will cease. There's coming a time when tongues are not going to exist anymore. And that's a topic for another day. But you can see why the, the Corinth church was so excited about speaking in tongues because just 20, 30 years ago, Acts chapter 2, people were speaking in tongues. They were speaking in known languages and people were saying, oh, the Spirit's at work. I hear people speaking in my language. And they saw the fire and they saw the excitement and they were like, yes, I want that. But Paul's saying, tongues will cease. As for knowledge, and again, talking about a special spiritual knowledge that you were sort of, I'm in the inside and those on the outside just don't know. He says, all of this will die. It will come to an end. But love is different. It is both now and forever. I need to say this very clearly. What we are doing now as it relates to the music, as it relates to hospitality, as it relates to small groups, as it relates to youth ministry, children's ministry, whatever ministry you want to put in, it will fade away. But the one thing that never, ever fades away is love. Here's the second thing we need to to understand as he's comparing the the temporal nature of the spiritual gifts, we need to understand that love is it. I didn't, I didn't know exactly how to phrase this, and so I thought shorter was better, but love is it. We talk about someone having the it factor. That means that they, they, they understand it, and they live it, and they can, they can make it happen. What I wanted to say is love is spiritual maturity, or love is the benchmark for what it means to be spiritual. Again, the Corinth church, they were heading in the wrong direction. They thought that the spiritual gifts is what it meant to be spiritual. And what Paul wanted to remind them in the the contrast of the temporal nature of the spiritual gifts and that them not being forever like love is, that love is it. Love is what it means to be spiritual. When I first got into ministry, there was a gentleman, and I'll keep it anonymous, he, he spoke in tongues, but he also told me privately that he was a habitual liar. And often he would come to me and he was just like, you know, the problem is we need to be praying and we need to be, we need to be more spiritual and we need to be speaking in tongues. And yet at the same time, he would say, yes. I got this problem where I'm lying and I'm not telling the truth. And it was just sort of a crazy thing. He, he would go up to strangers and he would just start telling them lies. And he would get sort of a spiritual high from lying. You see, we can't deceive ourselves and to say we're spiritual if we're not loving. Probably the best example today is we want to pray about everything and Do we really need to pray about loving our spouse or loving our children or loving our child who has rebelled? Do we really need to pray about loving each other in the church? Do we really need to to, to say, oh, I need to pray and fast about what type of ministry we need to be doing that will impact our community for for God and for the, the glory of God? 
Speaking of finances, sometimes we say, well, well I, need, I need to pray about either my giving or I need to pray about how I can um, pay back someone that I owe money to. And I think Paul would be saying, you're over-spiritualizing your prayer life. You need to just love. You need to act. You need to respond. So love is it. Love is the most spiritual thing we can do. You see, if you look at the New Testament and what Jesus challenged us to do, it wasn't a ministry that Jesus emphasized. It wasn't a program that Jesus emphasized. It wasn't what we're doing here even on Sunday morning that was emphasized. It's, it's not about preaching and singing and music and, and where we're sitting and how we're um, doing youth ministry and children's ministry. What was it throughout the New Testament from the Gospels through Revelation is love. That is the standard. That is the mark of spirituality. Even being a pastor is not highlighted in Scripture. And doing the Sunday morning church event is not what is highlighted. It's they will know we are Christians by our love. By our love. What Paul is trying to say is that love wins. Love always wins wins. Again, in the primary focus in the church, love always wins. If there's a disagreement, love always wins. If there is a preference, love always wins. If there is a relationship that has gone sour, love always wins. But we know this is true. Where we live, love always wins. In our marriage, love always wins. I can't think of a time when love doesn't win in marriage. Love wins as parents. And parents of kids that maybe are not rebellious, but they're just not honoring you at the moment. Love always wins. Love always wins with a parent who is hard to honor and respect. Love always wins. Love wins at work. Love wins. At school, love always wins. Love wins if you're on a team. Love wins. The way Paul has been showing both the temporal and eternal nature of love, he moves in verse 11 and he starts talking about that these spiritual gifts are partial. They're they're only a, a small picture, that there's a bigger picture and that is love. But he also says, not only in part, but eventually we're going to be made full. And he uses a couple of examples. The first one is, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He's saying, when I became a man, when I understood what life was all about, I understood that love wins. You see, if you don't understand that love wins, you're still acting like a child. In fact, I think that Paul is sort of, sort of spiritually spanking the Corinth church. He says that your, your focus on love and spirituality being an emotion and speaking in tongues and your spiritual knowledge, that's really immature. 
Because if you were truly mature, you would be loving one another in the church. You see, the mark of spiritual maturity is our love for one another. But notice what he says in verse 12. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And literally what he was saying was, you see, Corinth was known for their mirrors. And I don't know how mirrors looked back then or how they worked. But the picture wasn't totally real. It was dim. And what he is saying is, there's so much more when, when you see something face to face. So it's like us seeing a picture of the Grand Canyon or the Niagara Falls versus going to the Grand Canyon or the Niagara Falls. Or us seeing a picture of someone famous and us meeting them face to face. He's saying that when we focus in on the wrong spiritual gifts and the wrong ministries and the wrong programs and the wrong systems in the church, when our focus is wrong, we're, we're, we're only participating in something that is only half there. It's half right. And so what he is saying is that he only knows in part that he knows eventually there's going to be a fuller knowledge when he sees God face to face, when he sees Jesus face to face, when, when him and the Holy Spirit have been transformed into the image of Christ, we're going to see that, oh, yes, it's about love. And it's about love wins. So then he ends it by saying in verse 13, so now, some people think that He's, he's taken us to heaven, but I think he's done with his argument. He's done with the argument that love never dies and that love is both now and forever and that love is it and that love always wins. And he, so now he gives an expression that was probably a common teaching, just sort of like we say, you know, following Christ will make you better at life and will make your life better. Or, you know, you, you need to open up your heart to Jesus Christ and and let him have a relationship with you. They would talk about faith, hope, and love. And I want to help us understand what faith, hope, and love is. He, he's not saying that, that love is greater and so faith and hope is not significant. And by the way, um, he wasn't saying that spiritual gifts are not significant. He was saying, in comparison to love, though, love is greater. And so we need to understand what faith is. Faith is always assurance. It's, it's confidence. And so what we talk about is we need to have our assurance in the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and that he rose again. And assurance in the promise of God that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Faith is always assurance. It's confidence in God and taking the assurance not in ourselves, but putting our assurance in the fact that Jesus said, it is finished. Faith is so important now. It's what gets us into relationship with Jesus Christ. Faith will exist in heaven, but it's not 
it's going to be like assurance that God is in heaven and that God is going to do something great tomorrow and that God is good. But as important as faith is, faith without love is meaningless. A faith community, being a part of a faith community, being a part of a church is meaningless if there is not love. And that's why love is greater than faith. Hope is anticipation. Hope is anticipating what is going to happen in the future. Again, it's what gets us to the next step. I like to describe as hope adds color to love. It, It makes love even more beautiful. Why? Because you're anticipating that God is in the action. And that's why in verse 7 it talks about Love believes all things or trusts all things or love has faith at all times and that love has hope. Love is confident and assured that God is at work in the future. And so when you have that, it adds color to your love because you're always anticipating what God is going to do in you and through you. But love is also an action. Again, I'll repeat it. Love is not an emotion, it is not something we feel. Being spiritual is not an emotion or something we feel. Love is an action. Love is a step of obedience. Whether it was the Apostle Paul, whether it was one of Jesus' best friends, um, the Apostle John, whether it was Jesus' brother James, they all had the same message that basically said, if you're not loving one another, if you're not moving forward in your behavior of love towards one another, even the Apostle Peter, he said that we need to love one another deeply. It's an action. It's a verb. It's a movement. So as we wrap up this series, we need to constantly ask ourselves this next step question. I asked it last week and I'll ask it this week. Reading this passage and talking about the greatness of love, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? Where where I live, where I work, where I play, where I study, What does love require of me? What does love require of you in this church? What does love require of you in this church if you've been here for a very long time? What does it require of you to love someone who's new to the church? If you're new to the church and you feel like an outsider, what does it look like to love people in this church? What does it look like to love people regardless of an awareness of the spiritual gifts? What is it? require of you? What does it require of you as you go home today to love your spouse, to love your children, to love your parents? What does love require of you if you find yourself suddenly divorced or you find yourself single and you're not married? What does love require of you? What does it require of you if you're in a bad relationship or your relationship is not pure? What does love require of you? The reason I do this series is because I want us to inspire people to love Jesus, but I want us to inspire people to love like Jesus loved. 
And we need to ask ourselves, what is love going to require of us to help the next generation not only love Jesus, but to love like Jesus as well? Let us pray. Father, help us to love one another just as you have loved us. Amen.